This is part two of a two-part episode. If you haven't yet listened to part one, go back and listen to that first. We'll be here when you get back. It was 2003, the week between Christmas and New Year's, a week when people typically go out of town to see family, to just get away. If my uncle didn't get the messages that my mom was leaving for him, and no one knew we were here, then there was no reason to plow the road up that big hill to the park entrance. We might be stuck here for a while. While I napped that afternoon, I had restless dreams. Dreams of mom yelling at Molly and Steven. Dreams of that little girl, an identical copy of myself. I imagined her looking in the window at me. In the dream, we were back home, back in the city. But she was there. She was waiting behind a closed door, standing in a doorway down the hall, dead eyes and a big smile. As I lingered on the verge of waking, I was aware of both places at once. I knew I was napping in the cabin, but in my mind, I was home with that awful little girl. As the real world started to break through, I was just as anxious as when I'd gone to sleep. Now fully awake, the sun was getting low on the horizon. It was almost dark. When I came out of the room, there was a different mood in the air. It was a little less tense than it had been when I went to sleep. Mom seemed to have made peace with Stephen being here, and there's nothing she could do about it now anyway. She pulled me aside and explained that we probably weren't going to be leaving tomorrow like we'd planned. I didn't like the way she knelt down and talked to me in that tone that parents use to break bad news to kids. I didn't want to be treated like a little kid in front of a stranger. So, I told her I already knew what was going on. She said we were going to have to make the food stretch. After all, we'd be here longer than planned, and we had an extra person to feed now. We're gonna get out of here, baby. The weather's gonna lift soon. We just have to stay put for a while until it's safe to leave. The sun was completely down now and the wind picked up. We could hear it whistling around and through the edges of the windows. Outside, the night was bright, casting silver light through the windows. Last night, everything had been dark, and then once the snow started, I could only see so far. But now, with the moon up and the snowfall stopped, I could see forever. I thought again about the girl that I'd seen in the forest. I scanned the other cabins and buildings for any sign of another light on. Another family sharing the park with us. There was nothing. While I was asleep, Mom had left another message for my uncle. In 2003, it was still common for people to have a landline and a cell phone. Mom only knew our uncle's landline number. But so far, despite being isolated, everything was fine, really. We were stuck, 
but we were fine. I wasn't excited about the snow anymore. I was glad it had stopped. That was the first step to being able to go home. I thought about my friends in my neighborhood. I tried to imagine what the neighborhood would even look like with this much snow. I wished I was there now, back in my familiar, comfortable space, where Molly and I could watch movies until late in the night, and where the neighborhood Christmas tree would light up my window from two blocks over. I didn't want to go back outside. Not after this afternoon. Mom was about to go to bed. Now that Stephen was here, he would sleep in Molly's old room, and Molly would sleep with me. There was a particularly strong gust of wind. The air pressure in the cabin changed for a moment. The windows creaked hard, and somewhere outside, somewhere nearby, there was a loud cracking and crashing sound. And all at once, the cabin fell into complete darkness. There was a moment of panic. After a few seconds, the light from Molly and Stephen's phones lit up the main room. My mom was looking for something on the floor. I tracked her movements through the dark cabin. I couldn't see what she was doing. And then it hit me. The vents. Without the power, there was no heat. Mom made her way to the fireplace where there was a handful of logs prepped for a fire. We need to start a fire right now. Everyone sprung into action, and a few minutes later, there was a small fire in the big, decorative fireplace. There weren't many logs. They were meant to add a cozy ambiance to the place. They weren't meant to heat an entire cabin. They wouldn't last more than a few hours. With the fire going, there was a moment of calm while everyone stood in the orange light. Shadows bounced around on the ceiling. Anything that wasn't in direct line of sight of the fireplace was dark. I went to my bedroom. I don't know. I just wanted to get away from the others. It already felt cold in there. Now that I was away from the fire, I could see that there was another light source after all. There was a silver light from the window, moonlight reflecting off of the snow. I could feel the wind coming in from around the edges of the window. Outside, Mom's car was still almost completely covered on one side from the blowing snow. Stephen's car was still down by the end of the drive, by the sharp drop where the mountain ended suddenly. Past that, the town of Olive Hill was still lit up bright a little cluster of bright white on the horizon. The power was still on there. I could hear everyone talking in the other room. When you're a kid, people talk around you like you're not there. You don't have any say in what's being decided. You just have to go with it. So you learn to listen with resignation. Okay, there's a kitchen table, four chairs... Two end tables in here. Does everyone have one in their bedrooms? There's a cabinet in the bathroom with removable shelves. The cabinets in the kitchen. What are you talking about? We 
might have to burn the furniture. That was the first time I felt really afraid. Before we resorted to burning the furniture, Mom wanted to go check out the other cabins. Maybe there was a generator or a kerosene heater somewhere. Maybe another door had been left open by mistake and they had power. If there were no other options, we could pack into the car and turn on the heater as a last resort. After all, we'd filled up the tank when we got off the highway. It would last a while, but not forever. Once the gas was gone, that would be it. That was our way off the mountain. We had options, but none of them were good. Mom bundled up in the warmest clothes she brought. We did the same. She told us to keep the door closed, to keep the heat in. She wouldn't be long. We watched from the window as she started the slow trudge through the knee-deep snow. The light from her flashlight panned across the night. After a few seconds, her footsteps disappeared into the wind, the snow deadening the sound. We lost sight of her and the beam from the flashlight when she turned the corner around another cabin. With nothing to see outside, we went back to the fireplace and sat close, trying to absorb the heat as though we could store it for later. The wind picked up again, and there was a gust that rattled the windows. The fire was radiating heat, and I was becoming warm despite the cold in the rest of the cabin. I laid back and closed my eyes while Stephen and my sister talked. I don't know how much time had passed since I closed my eyes. I'm not sure if I dozed off, but when I sat up, Stephen and my sister were still sitting where they had been, but they were closer to each other, still talking. I thought I heard something on one of the wind gusts. It sounded like Mom. It sounded like she was shouting my name. I asked Molly and Stephen if they'd heard it, but they said they didn't. It's probably just the wind. I went to the window and looked. Nothing. I asked how long she'd been gone, and neither of them knew. Look, the snow is so high, it's going to take a while to get around out there. There's nothing to worry about. I hoped he was right. The night drug on, the wind leveled off, and pretty soon it was quiet outside. That was good, right? Snow wouldn't be blowing around, and the cabin wouldn't have so many drafts. And then we heard it. Footsteps. Footsteps I didn't recognize. We all jumped up and ran to the door. Stephen flung it open to make way for her to come back in. I stayed back, though. Something was wrong. Something I couldn't quite place. There was no one out front. We couldn't hear anything either. And that's when we realized it. 
we'd gone to the wrong door. The footsteps were approaching from somewhere else. We all realized at once and turned to face the other direction, toward the back door, the sliding glass door where I'd gone out to play earlier. Why would she be coming from that way? It led right out into the forest. We turned around to face the back door, and there she was. It was Mom, but something was wrong. It was her expression. A big, unnatural grin. A smile that didn't reach her eyes. I thought about the little girl I'd seen on the edge of the woods that morning. The one that looked just like me. How the smile she'd given me was accompanied by those same dead eyes. In that moment, we all knew the same impossible thing at the same time. That wasn't Mom. We also knew one other terrifying truth. We didn't lock the sliding door. Stephen tried to make a dash to the door, but he was too late. Whatever it was that looked like Mom had already pulled it open. He backed into us, and we huddled together and tried to slowly back away, but it kept coming toward us. I felt my back hit the wall. There was nowhere else to go. We were cornered. She was inside and closing the distance between us. And then, just as she was steps away, she sat down on the couch. We stood there, our backs against the wall. She was looking straight at the fireplace, almost in relief, like she was finally home. There was a moment of doubt. Maybe the cold had just gotten to her. Maybe that's why she was so stiff. Why her face and expression were off. Maybe she was disoriented, hypothermic. But there's something I knew that Molly didn't. Molly had been gone. Maybe she'd forgotten. But when you live with someone, you know their footsteps. And when she was approaching the house, when she walked over the wooden floor of the cabin... The weight of them was off. The gate was wrong. Those weren't the same footsteps Mom had when she left. Almost as if she were reading my mind. Just in that moment, she turned her head to face us. That smile was still plastered on her face. Unnaturally stiff. There was no black in the center of her eyes. She stared hard at us, but didn't move. We need to go. The landline rang in the other room. We all jumped, but Mom didn't flinch. There was no way we were going to try to answer it. 
we started slowly backing toward the door. We'd already bundled up in our warmest clothes. We had layers and heavy coats on. I don't think we had a plan. We were just instinctively moving away from the thing that was impersonating our mom, even if that meant venturing into the freezing night. Maybe that's what it wanted us to do. Maybe it didn't have a plan either. We kept backing away, our feet and knees trudging through the deep snow, our heads swiveling around, looking for anything else out of the ordinary, looking for our real mom. I kept my eyes on the cabin door, waiting for whatever that was to come flying out at us, to come and get us, whatever that meant and whatever it would have done to us. But it never did. We got as far as Stephen's car and ducked behind it. We regrouped there, and he and Molly made a plan. They weren't sure whether that thing in the cabin was our mom. Or, I could see it in their faces. They both looked at me and remembered what I'd said that afternoon about the little girl that looked like me. I didn't feel like saying I told you so. We looked for any trace of mom, our real mom. Stephen looked at her footprints in the snow, leaving the cabin a couple of hours ago. He lost track of them when they turned a corner behind a cabin. We were still crouched behind the car, not yet ready to move in case it was watching us. But there were other prints. They looked like hers, coming out of the cluster of cabins and over toward the edge of the mountain. These weren't big footsteps in the snow. These were long cuts through the surface of white, like she'd been running. Stephen crept out to the edge of the lot, keeping the car between him and the cabin. He followed those big cuts in the snow right up to the edge of the mountainside. He looked over the edge for a long moment. The moon was getting higher in the sky and I could see the vast silver forest behind him. Past the edge of the cliff, tree limbs slumped under the extra weight of the snow. It went on forever, in every direction. The bright, silvery night. I thought about the neighborhood tree. I thought about winter trick-or-treat. And all the plans we'd made for the coming year all the wishes that weren't coming true. And I felt more alone than I'd ever felt in my life. It was getting colder by the minute, so we had to do something. We all agreed that there was no way we were going back to the cabin. We couldn't let anyone out of our sight. If someone separated from the group, how could we be sure that they were really themselves when they came back? The cars weren't going anywhere, so that left only one option. We were going to have to walk out. I don't know how late it was by this point, but the wind had died down and the air didn't feel as cold as it had before. I would find out later that this wasn't necessarily a good sign. 
Once we were past the gates of the entrance of the campground, we stopped looking back as often, stopped looking for her. The road was steep, and as we descended, we were no longer above the forest looking down. We were in it. I could see a long way into the trees. The silver forest would have been magical, except for the fear that we'd see someone peering out from behind one of those trees. A face. Maybe mom. Maybe one of us. We got to the end of the park drive and found where it met the county road. The county road had been plowed at some point. More snow had fallen, but definitely not as much as we'd just walked through. It was easier to move. We could go a little quicker. But I felt myself getting lightheaded and sleepy. I started falling behind Molly and Stephen. Come on, you gotta keep moving. You can't stop. I tried, but it was getting harder. Stephen picked me up and carried me for a long time. I felt myself starting to drift off, to lose connection with my surroundings. Just then, I caught a glimpse of something through the trees. Headlights. Headlights coming from around a bend in the road. Oh my god. It was my uncle. They took us to the hospital to get checked out. We had been walking for about three hours in the cold. Our legs from the knees down were soaked and frostbitten. We got lucky. My uncle had gotten mom's messages when he returned home. When he couldn't reach us by phone, he drove out to see if he could get to us. That's who was trying to call as we were leaving. The cabins were in a national forest, so no one lived there. If we'd have stayed on the road, if we'd have kept walking, it would have been another seven miles to the edge of the forest. Seven miles to the nearest house. I don't know that we'd have made it. We were in the hospital a county over, being questioned by police as the sun began to rise. At the same time, back at the state park, they finally got a plow up to the entrance gate. A rescue crew of first responders and county workers followed. The fire we'd left burning in the fireplace was out. It had been out for hours. All the doors to the cabin were standing open. Mom was right where Stephen had stood, looking over the side of the mountain, about 60 feet down. The snow wasn't enough to break her fall. There's an official version of what happened, and then there's what really happened. The official story ties it all up nice and neat. Mom went looking through the other cabins for supplies, anything to keep us warm through the night. She saw something that caused her to go running toward the edge of the mountain. She misjudged the distance in the snow. She couldn't stop in time. And that was that. Why did she go running toward the edge of the mountain? Because there were little footprints right there by the edge. 
footprints about my size. Mom saw me get too close. She ran to grab me, and she went over. There's just one problem with the official version of events. I was never there. I never went anywhere near the edge of the mountain. I always listened to my mom. When you're a kid, people talk around you like you're not there. They make plans, and they tell you what to do, and you do it. At least that's the kind of kid I was. Mom told me to stay away from the edge, and I never went near it. But how do you explain that to someone who saw prints just like mine right there? You can't. And I don't blame them for not believing me. So what really happened? There's something in the forest around Olive Hill. Something that looks like you, but isn't. The little girl in the forest. The one that looked like me. That's who Mom saw standing by the edge of the mountain. And she did exactly what she was supposed to. What any mom would. She ran to get her girl away from danger. We'll never know if she realized at the last moment that something was wrong. That something didn't add up. There's no way we could know. If you weren't there, the official story makes perfect sense. It all adds up. And anything different that you hear from the three kids who it happened to, it's trauma. It's the cold. It's grief. There's only one thing that doesn't make sense in the official version of events. If the four of us could be accounted for, me, Molly, Stephen, and Mom, why was there a trail of footsteps leading from the back door into the forest? Footsteps that kept going all the way along a high ridge line, expertly weaving along the high ridges and crevices of the snowy hills, all the way into a dense patch of trees, a place where the snowdrifts were chopped up by the crosswinds, where someone or something had disappeared into the night. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was A Voice on the Wind, written by Ian Epperson, narrated by Brooke Jeanette, Molly was Kayla Temchev, Emma Shajarko was mom, Nate DeFort played our main character's uncle, Ian Epperson was Stephen, Bridget Howard was the voice on the radio. Editing and sound design by Liz Walker, music by Kayla Ritchie. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, 
Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Paul Doyle, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Jack Chaddock, and Temple Ruff. Thank you so much for your support. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo. We're most active on Twitter where we're kind of spooky, but mostly we just try to be funny. I don't know if it actually works or not. Give us a follow and let us know. We'll have links for those in the show notes too. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. Bridget Howard is watching you from the edge of the trees. Thanks for listening. See you next month.